Orhan Pamuk's recent visit to London coincided with the publication of his first new book since he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature last year. The book, Other Colours, is a collection of essays and reflections on life, art, books and politics. Literature, Pamuk says, begins with a willingness to shut yourself up in a room. And I began by asking him about the strict discipline he imposes upon himself as a writer. Between the ages of 7 and 22, I wanted to be a painter. And everyone in my family thought that I would be a painter. And, and my desire to be a painter was accepted by the family, the community. So when I went to my room, locked its door, and spent some two hours, three hours, five hours in my early years, in my teenage years, so to speak, that was accepted by the people around me, and that began to slowly and slowly to be a sort of a habit. Mm. I needed that solitary time in a room uh, with paper and pencil and colors. Uh, So when I switched to writing fiction uh, with some because of some mysterious reasons which I could never fathom enough which I try to explain perhaps in my book Istanbul mm. then there was a continuity of mm. longing to be alone in a room and I still have it I combined this with an respect and care for the rules of art and craft of fiction Uh, In my teenage years, in my early uh, years, I was an amateur or a child painter. In my later years, I I enjoyed the continuity or the idea of doing the same thing in the sense that I was alone in a room. But then, when I sat alone in a room after I was 23, I wanted to be a writer. I was exploring myself enjoying my uh, loneliness and trying to invent something new as I was playing with my paper and pen. In the new book you say while you were looking for your voice as a writer you had to use a very um, vivid image you say you had to break the bones of language I think can you say what you what you mean by by that? A language is so many things for us first it's something that we are not aware of. It's something that we use our heads and communicate with people. Second, if you're a writer, it's an instrument that you became more and more aware because you're trapped in it. That you have an image, but you want to pin down that image to uh, other people. You want to pin down that image with verbs. But that's not enough then you have to carve that image into sentences, compose sentences in a way. I like the way Nobako uh, refers to himself, saying that I compose this sentence that way, that sentence this way. I think that the, the essential unit in writing is a sentence, not a paragraph, not a page, not a chapter, not a word. Because a sentence is a brief, is a sort of a breathe and it has it is a the atomic unit that you cannot divide for me writing fiction writing books or writing prose is composing sentences but sentences should correspond to what you have in your mind 
the energy you have in your spirit, what you uh, want to aim at. And you, we can only express ourselves through sentences, through these units. The self-imposed job of being a writer is expressing your imagery, the world around you, your aspirations, your dreams, uh, whatever you have in, inside yourself uh, through sentences. You have to carve out or uh, compose sentences that in your language. And the language is so essential, especially in Turkish, in, in inventing, in making yourself you're making your presence felt as an instrument of expressing yourself so dominant that uh, you after a while I'm writing fiction for the last 33 years by the way you realize all thoughts all communication are embedded in language we think there are two sides to our thinking we think first by images we also think by verbs by language are what we call our thoughts are a combination of these images and verbs. There is no thinking without verbs. There is no thinking without images. Even a blind person thinks also with images. But once you begin to think and express it, you, you need the language in such a way uh, that you also realize after writing fiction for 33 years, we are also prisoners of our languages. That's why all authors love their language because you're, you know, it's like your city, it's your, like your country, you have to deal with it. And also hate their language because it's not elastic or plastic enough. It does not give the total, you cannot, you can never exhaust it that it is never it will never be your slave and you realize that it the language fights back you sometimes think that you're inventing the language but after a while you realize that you're only a prisoner of the language you're trying to do something with now you've been translated i believe into some 40 55, 55 lang- I'm behind the, I'm behind the times and i wondered what you, you you write in turkish and turkish is structurally in terms of vocabulary alien to quite a lot of the languages you've been translated into first of all english is the only language that i feel i have some understanding of the other um, translated to 55 languages but probably of this 55 some 25 are translated from english Hmm. from other languages Uh, of the remaining 35 i don't know the only one i can check i can have a, a a little bit of a sense of what's happening here in this other language is English. But really the structure of Turkish is so different. Sometimes the whole trapeze of turning Turkish around and inventing it in English is such a major job that I feel exhausted by checking the translation. But on the other hand, translation is also translation of not the grammatical sentence structure of that language was also the translation of the lexicon, the mm. words, that I'm more comfortable with and uh, check out the, if there is an imprecision. But then I'm also notorious in Turkish by the t- among the Turkish readers for the length and sometimes complexity of 
my sentence structures, I also sometimes impose upon my translators or demand that my translators pay respect and attention to the length, inner structure, inner music, harmony, and the placing of the sentences in reference to the coming sentence and the previous sentences. So I always read my English translations. Then I always work with my translator. We sit at the table and work and discuss. And I care about the beauty of my English translations. In one of the essays in the book, you talk about the visit by Arthur Miller and Harold Pinter in 1985 in support of, of Turkish writers' freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. And you say, I think, that f from around that time, you developed a, a more powerful political personality. And I wondered, more than 20 years on, what your, what your feelings were about that political personality, which is, which is I think, come to, to loom larger. Because I know you have an ambivalence about, about how that weighs in in, in literary um, writers. Essentially, I'm a literary writer. I have all, at the beginning, at my beginning years, I have always compared myself to the previous generation of Turkish writers, the old examples, and I was critical of them for being too political, too socially committed, to for trying to serve their country with their political, moral agendas. I thought that compared to them, I would be more like Proust or Nabokov, a person who does not much care about politics and social issues or social commentary. And I still believe in these things. But here and there I make political comments or questions like the one you have just asked me or asked, and I'm angry and I want to make a point. And, and there's some uh, truth that everyone, no one uh, talks about or repressed truth. So I talk about these issues and always find myself in political trouble. My point here is that, that essentially I'm, no, I'm not a political person. But once I find myself in a political problem because of this or because of what I say here or there or with an anger, heartfelt fear I write about, then I fasten my seatbelt and wait for the trouble and the trouble always comes. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you one final question. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me that the book has a strong autobiographical um, mm -hmm. strand and it seemed to me that your father you write very movingly about his death mm -hmm. early in the book. You write about him in your Nobel address. Mm -hmm. You write a short story which you say is very thinly veiled autobiography about his disappearance. And it seemed to me that he was a sort of leitmotif, a sort of reference point mm -hmm. um, throughout the, the collection, really. And I wondered if you could sort of... Well, I'm a just a normal boy in the sense that my father is, of course, a reference point. I don't know how Freudian, Freudian I am. And I don't think that, that in that sense my father was a Freudian father that is he was not repressive, or at least I represent him, him in such a more a light way. He was, compared to other Turkish fathers, a very tolerant man who, uh, uh, who was reading books all the time and who was teaching early on in, in a country where all the important people were either pashas, military generals, military figures, or religious figures. I was lucky to have a father who was reading Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and was recommending those writers to me and who was also very uh, liberal in the sense that open-minded, not sub suppressive and a very tolerant figure. And, and, and another thing that I'm very grateful to him was that he, whatever I said in my childhood, me or my brother, whatever we said, 
he acted as if we were both geniuses and that also liberated me from so many things. He was a very prayerful, self-confident a man without any resentments who made who also wanted to wanted us to be like him and he wanted to be a writer he my father wanted to be a, a poet he translated paul valery was interested in poetry um, but he was leading a leisurely charming life and didn't want to impose on himself discipline the determination self sacrifice that literature which i th- I, i think demands I don't blame him for this decision. <laughs> Orhan Pamuk, thank you very much indeed. It was a joy to talk.